That, to me, blows my mind. Jesus didn't ask what somebody's insurance plan was before healing them. Jesus didn't say, you know, come unto me unless you have a pre-existing condition. And yet we sort of impose these things on others from our position of privilege. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle or take apart an issue that has or has the potential to be problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we won't always agree, but we won't argue. The goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing our views in a way that builds bridges and not barriers. Our guest this week is Mark Schrein. Mark is one of the most diverse guests to date on the show. He is the founder and director of the Center for Global Surgery Evaluation at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. He is an assistant professor at Harvard and visiting research scholar at Princeton University. He has served on Mercy Ships, a state-of-the-art floating hospital aiding the coast of Africa. He is an author, an avid photographer, a rock climber, and has competed on season eight and nine of American Ninja Warrior. Mark, welcome to The Dismantle. Thanks for having me. I'm excited you're on, and that's quite a pedigree you got there. Thank you. Mark, before we dive into our topic for today, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. What drew you to the medical field as a profession? My road to the medical field was actually really convoluted. Hmm. Uh, so I am the firstborn son of an immigrant family. Uh, we uh, came from Lebanon to the U.S. when I was two. Okay. And as a lot of immigrants know, uh, often you have three choices, doctor, lawyer, or failure. Mm. Uh, so I chose doctor. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I tried. I really wanted to, growing up, I really wanted to do other things. I, I, for a while, really wanted to be a rock star because what little boy doesn't want to be a rock star? Of course. Then I wanted to be a philosopher because what little boy doesn't want to be a philosopher? Uh, but, uh, but really what I wanted to be was honestly, I wanted to be a linguist. Um, I sort of grew up listening to and reading the stories of the missionaries that would go into the jungles of Papua New Guinea for 20 years and, you know, create a, a writing system for a language that didn't exist. Uh, and, uh, that's what I wanted to do, but I couldn't, uh, this was, you know, I, I was told that I needed to find a job that is quote unquote useful, that, um, my, my, my dad's rule for the job that I needed to find was you need to find something whose sole purpose isn't to perpetuate itself. Uh, so, and I liked science, I liked biology, so I, I majored in biology and 95% uh, of the people graduating from my biology class went into med school. So I decided to go into med school uh, with them. And it's, in retrospect, not the, uh, not the right way to make these decisions um, because I uh, genuinely did not like medical school. I, I really hated it. I tried to quit a few times um, per day. Um, I took a year off after medical school. Uh, sorry, after my first year of medical school, I took a year off and went to Singapore, basically to get about as far away from medical school as possible. And I taught for a year uh, in Singapore and really actually enjoyed that year. I like teaching. I like the role of an educator. Uh, strongly considered actually staying in Singapore, applying for permanent residency in Singapore, because I like that year so much, I like that job so much, and that country so much. But I chickened out, went back to med school, and uh, continued really not, not liking it. So that when it came time for me to decide what uh, specialty I was going to do, uh, I decided that in my, in my infinite wisdom, 
the right way for me to pick a specialty was to find something that would let me work as little as possible and make as much money as possible so that I could do all the other things that I wanted to do in my life. Turns out that that's also not the wisest way to pick a specialty. Um, I'm noticing a trend. <laughs> there's, a, there's a trend here, right? Uh, so I, I ended up I ended up picking ENT, ear, nose, and throat, uh, and unsurprisingly didn't really like that either. Uh, but it wasn't until the, an ENT residency is five years when I did it, and it wasn't until the fourth and fifth year that I got introduced to surgery of head and neck tumors. And that I actually really did enjoy. I enjoyed the the patients. I enjoyed the, the surgeries themselves. I enjoyed the sort of biology of cancer and the research of cancer. And and honestly, at this point, it had been you know twelve years of education. I had no other marketable skills besides medicine. So I kind of had to find a way to to make it work. And so I, I ended up doing a, a fellowship in head and neck cancer and a second fellowship in in microvascular reconstruction of the head and neck. And uh, and Sort of that took me down the road, but I know I'm getting very far from where you asked the first question. But uh, but for me, what in between my two fellowships, in between these two fellowships, I took a year off and spent six months traveling, but then six months working with Mercy Ships in Liberia. This is 2008, and that was the epiphany moment uh, for me. The walking down onto the onto the hospital deck and into one of the wards where all 15 patients in that ward had head neck tumors at different stages in recovery, I had this moment of, oh, this is what I've been training for 15 years to do. So it was a long road to get to finally realizing that, oh, this is actually what I, I want to do with the rest of my life. Now, what drew you to Mercy Ships? Uh, obviously, you uh, graduated from Princeton. There's a long list of accolades within that. And now there's this floating hospital. Uh, how did you get introduced to that? The introduction, I'd heard about Mercy Ships kind of peripherally over the course of my my growing up. But the real introduction happened uh, 2005-ish. A friend of mine was friends with somebody who had been a photographer on the ship. Uh, and he was doing a show of his photography in New York City, where I was living at the time. Uh, and, you know, it was, again, the same thing. I went to see this, and the pictures were of all sorts of different surgical conditions, not just head and neck tumors, but there were a fair number of head and neck tumors, and this is what I knew I was going to be doing. So when it came time to take a year off and do something with that year, there aren't a lot of organizations that at least then there are more now, but there weren't a lot of organizations then that actually would have used this skill set. Um, and so I had the choice of uh, doing something medical, but not necessarily within my skill set, with a whole bunch of different organizations that I could have chosen, or using the skill set that I had trained uh, to use. And Mercy Ships was really one of the only few uh, that that did this sort of surgery. Did you feel like doing anything else would have been a waste of your time? I don't know that it would have been a waste of my time. Uh, I, in retrospect, I know I wouldn't have had that epiphany moment if I hadn't done that. For those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with Mercy Ships, uh, it is a hospital setting and it does focus on some areas that we're going to get to, but it does have a missions mindset to it. 
did you have any experience working with missions prior to that? So I did during the my first and second year of medical school. Uh, the school that I went to in Texas would take mission trips down to just south of the border, just into into Mexico, into Matamoros, Mexico. They were week long trips. We did diagnostics, gave out vitamins, didn't do uh, much more than that. You can't do a lot more than that uh, in a week. But that was really, yeah, that was my first experience, uh, my first introduction to medical missions. Now, when you joined the ship, what were some things that either surprised you, different than your expectations? Like when you walked into it, what was your expectation versus what you actually found? I will tell you that my first experience on the my Prior to my first experience on the ship, I was terrified. What do you? I'd never been to Africa before. You don't know what to expect. You're going. I was going to Liberia, this country that had just come out of a civil war. Uh, volunteering to live on a ship when I get seasick, uh, and so I, I really had no idea what to expect. I didn't know if what the cabins were going to be like, what the berths were going to be like, what the ORs were going to be like. Uh, you know, you do as much research as you can you read as many blogs as you can but <clears throat> you really can't tell uh, until you actually get there uh it is a and it's become even more so in the last 11 years that i've been working there but it is a it is a well-run organization uh the ship itself is very well run the ors themselves are incredibly well run i think that's what surprised me is that things were easier than I thought they were going to be. Uh, you get the sense that you're going to go into sort of the, the mission field uh, and you you read stories and you see pictures of missionary doctors. Uh, this was not that. Um, this was very much, you know, there's not, there's not absolutely everything that you would need to do whatever operation that you want that you could find here, but it's pretty close. Now on your website, because... We do stalking on this show. Excellent. Uh, you have this statement about your interest in the intersection of health and impoverishment. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's this, there is this connection between health and poverty. And the connection, the, there's an obvious connection between healthcare access and poverty, which is that if you're poor, you can't access healthcare or it's harder to access healthcare. And that's important, but actually not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the opposite direction. I'm interested in the fact that accessing healthcare and especially surgical care in a lot of places, including the U.S., because of the cost of surgical care, it can drive people into impoverishment. So that's so we we published a paper in 2015 that showed that uh, over 80 million people who get surgery every year are pushed into poverty because of the costs of surgery. If you think about that, 80 million people is four times the population of the entire country of Australia pushed into poverty because they were searching for their own health care. So that's that's where I'm interested in, is that, that particular intersection. Is there a growing community that sees this as problematic? Uh, sometime in the last five years, there's been this this growing concept of what, what we're calling universal health coverage. And UHC, universal health coverage, has three axes to it. It's got an axis of improving the the health of a population, improving the number of services that you offer to the population, which has been the focus of public health forever. Sure. But it also has two other axes. One is improving the equity, the distribution of that health, so increasing the number of people that you cover. And then the third is decreasing the direct out-of-pocket costs that patients pay. And I think that, that 
sort of multifactorial approach to health is super important because you know you could have the fanciest hospital you could have the best quality healthcare but if people aren't going to get to it if it's going to impoverish them it's unclear to me that we're actually doing good for these patients most professions focus on a business model uh, there is a money factor to what people do and obviously physicians need to be paid and cared for technology needs to be acquired equipment needs to be purchased what percentage in your opinion is patient payout going towards that and what percent is actually a money making percent of that right yeah it's a really good question uh, and i don't i think the answer there is no one answer to it because it's going to vary by country okay. uh, here in the states uh, you know, we've had a, a massive growth in healthcare costs and, and not a commensurate growth in healthcare outcomes. In fact, we, we are one of the least efficient systems out there in the developed world. We spend the most per person on healthcare and get pretty poor results because of it. Despite the sort of impression that healthcare in the U.S. is spectacular, it, you know, the numbers don't, don't necessarily support that. How much of that is driven by a profit motive? Uh, I don't, I don't know many hospitals, many, many hospitals are not for profit. Uh, however, those hospitals still employ a huge cadre of, of doctors, but also a huge cadre of administrators. The growth in healthcare administrators has outpaced the growth of, of physicians by tenfold. So, you know, it, it, the layers of, of healthcare in the U.S. are, are, are multiple, uh, and you've got, you've got the need for and the desire for innovation in technology, uh, you know, innovation in surgical techniques and in robotics and all these sorts of things. And that's going to drive costs. Uh, you've got this growth of, of administrators, which is going to drive costs because it's not a growth of salary, but it's a growth of number of people getting salaries. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you do have for-profit uh, hospitals. But, but I do think that the, I really do think that the profit motive is specifically in the hospital setting, is probably less of a driver. The profit motive in pharmaceuticals, in device manufacture, in things like that, for sure is there. Uh, but the profit motive also does allow for some of this innovation to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's a really complex right. interplay. It's, it's almost this, uh, this cyclical thing that's feeding right. itself. Right. And it's, it's not working. Right. If, if we really are spending this much money in the U.S. and not getting these results, the cyclical model isn't working as well as it, it should. And there are health systems that spend less and do there are a lot of health systems that spend less and do better than we do. Uh, so it, but I think it is hard to pinpoint one particular aspect and say this is to blame because there's a lot of them our medical legal system our you know, our our reimbursement systems, the way we the way we pay doctors, all these things incentivize the wrong way of delivering medicine. Now, on this show, we, we aim to help the church understand a particular issue a little bit better. Uh, and through the life of this character of Jesus, we see that his main function on earth while he was here was this healing factor. Uh, not just physical ailments, although he did that, but healing emotions, healing souls, broken systems, institutions, calling things what they were instead of just placating to the system that you know, almost like the emperor's new clothes wanted to pretend that nothing was wrong. 
in your opinion, do you think that the church has a responsibility to continue that work for the healthcare system? For the healthcare system specifically? Uh, I didn't know that's where you're going to go. That. That's a really good question. Why don't we take it back just a, a step before it's just the healthcare system, maybe just in general? So I think, at least to me, the answer to that question is obvious. If, if that is the person that Jesus was, and that is in his three years of public ministry, what he did. I can't imagine looking at that and thinking, all right, well, we really don't have a responsibility to, to these things. We really don't have a responsibility to physical healing, to emotional healing, to the healing of broken systems, to the breaking of the domination system that we have in this country and many other countries. I can't imagine looking at the life of Jesus and thinking anything besides, well, of course we need to be doing that. Mm. Yeah, and how we do that is a completely different conversation. It is. It is. But I also, I feel like we don't, we don't look at that a lot. The stereotypical, because I know the church is a very broad tent, but the stereotypical American Christian church focuses on individual salvation. That is what we hear in the church all the time. That is such a small part of what Jesus did when he was here. Uh, because what he focused on was the exact opposite. What he focused on, not the exact opposite, I mean, he focused on individuals as well, but what he focused on was exactly the things that you were saying. Uh, the, 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 the structures in place that kept people down, the... Uh, you know, he ate with the sinners, sinners in quotes, he ate with the sinners, with the, the prostitutes, with the tax collectors. And he did that, at least in my reading of it, almost as a, as sort of a physical example to the people that he was surrounded by, uh, of look at what you should be doing. And he says this at one point, right? You, you know, you won't, you won't lift a finger to help, uh, to help somebody he accuses the Pharisees of at some point. The church has a tendency to stay within its four walls, uh, to focus very much internally. Think, think about the songs that we sing in church. How many of them have to do with us? How many of them are inward focused, are internally looking? And how many of them look outside at the world around us? And I would say it's 90, 10, maybe, uh, but then if you look at the actions of Jesus, I think it was the opposite. Right. They were 90-10 in the other in direction. In the other direction, yeah. Mm. And even as you were saying that, I'm thinking about songs that we sing. Uh, you know, how many songs do we sing about social justice? How many songs do we sing about equality? How many songs do we sing about uh, preaching the good news to the poor? Right, right. Uh, you know, we can preach sure. about it, but we can't. And sing this about depends it. on which church you go to. But when was the last time you heard a preacher talk about social justice and equality? And 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 those words bizarrely in my mind have uh are have negative connotations within the context of some churches mm. social justice is a bad thing right somehow that's culture's war right now we don't have to deal with that right exactly exactly uh, exactly uh we i'm going to dive deep here there there has there has often the Christian response to politics 
and to engaging in the culture of the country that we find ourselves in. And I can only speak to the U.S. because that's what I'm, I'm used to. But often our response is one of two things. Either we say, oh, you know, religion is not political. So we wash our hands of it. Or we become co-opted by a particular political movement. And the, again, the sort of uh, stereotypical Christian church in the U.S. has very much become co-opted by a particular branch of politics. Uh, and I think both of those are unhealthy. Uh, Jesus' life was inherently political. He was crucified by the Romans, but he was crucified by the Romans, by the political system of his time, at the suggestion of the church of his time. And his resurrection, to me, I think, is an inherent message from God of... I am breaking the domination system of the church of your time, not just of Rome, but of the people who sent you to Rome. They killed you. I'm raising you from the dead. I don't think we think about that as much as we should. And we almost slide right back into the same oppressive system over and over again. I wasn't going to go there, but I think we do. And it's, it's, it's not just, I mean, it is a, you see this, you see this happen in history over and over again, that the oppressed become the oppressors. And there is no reason for us as the church to think that we're immune to that. And, and I don't think we are. I think we, I think you can see examples of it all the time of us couched in the Christian phrasings and the, you know, we do this out of love and et cetera, but couched in phrasings and in words of love, we become oppressive. Yeah, and, and along that, the first thing that came to my mind when you said the oppressed become the oppressors is, hey, we left England because we were oppressed, and now we're oppressing other nations. Same thing with the church. We were oppressed, and now we hate multiple communities, and we very casually hide behind certain verses and say, well, God actually disapproves of your lifestyle and your, your choices and the way that you interpret things, and you're, you're so right that the oppressed become the oppressors. There's a really great quote that I saw when I was, I believe I was visiting South Africa. There was a quote from Desmond Tutu, uh, which was, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at who's there. And that, that quote has stuck with me. It's been a decade since I saw that quote. But, but I really think we are, because think about the Pharisees. Uh, they were not bad people. In fact, I think they were really good people, and they were people trying to be really good. They saw the laws that, that they believed God had given them, and they wanted to live them as, as well as they could, and they wanted to encourage others to live them as well as they could. So they put strictures around actions such that if you stayed within these strictures, then you were obeying God's laws. This is, I think, genuinely a probably born of a really good place, but it became oppressive. We do the same thing. We absolutely do the same thing. Uh, and, it, it, you know, and it's, 
across all sort of political spe- the political spectrum within the church conservative christians progressive christians we all do the same thing of uh, if you don't agree with me i've interpreted god's law to say this and if you disagree uh well let me say this a different way i firmly believe in my interpretation of god's law mm-hmm. and if you disagree with me then clearly you're going against god's law right because what association does darkness have with light right exactly (laughs) you know to 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 take uh some humor onto it but yeah that that's exactly how we approach it and we cut off family ties we leave churches we uh denounce preachers all all in the name of preference and interpretation well all in the name of god Uh, right right and that's that's what it really boils down to is is, are those things that's very interesting now where would you say, going back to that earlier part of the, the question, where do you think the church has a responsibility when looking at a broken healthcare system? I think the church has exactly the same responsibility with the healthcare system as it does with other systems. The healthcare system in the U.S. in name a country, some countries more than others, but the healthcare system is a system of privilege. Let me give you an example. Give you an example. I don't know if this example is going to work, but let me try it. Uh, so I have I have a lipoma on my shoulder. I have a small, benign, fatty mass on my shoulder. I know it's there. It's been there for five years. Uh, I had you know I had the tests done. I know it's nothing serious, and I'm doing nothing about it. I'm letting it sit there, and then if it grows one day, I know that I can go into a doctor's office, get an appointment uh, for an operating room, and have it taken out. Think about the amount of privilege that's in that statement. I'm not doing anything. I have the privilege of not doing anything with this thing that's on my shoulder because, that I, because I know that it's available to me if I need it. And not only that, but the knowledge that you have that it is benign. It, right, and I was able to go and get the tests right. and, and know that it is benign. Uh, but the ability not to do something is is foundation uh, uh, the ability not to do something is founded on the fact that i know that something is there if i need it because i know i have access because i am well off enough that i and i have insurance that i could go and see a doctor and and have this taken out because i'm not living in liberia where i don't necessarily have access or i am not uh, an uninsured person here in the U.S. who doesn't necessarily have access, and this is this is a this is a domination system that uh, just I think as uh, Jesus's life was against the domination systems of his day, I think we also need to be against the domination systems of our day, and I, and and it is it is massively unpopular in conservative circles uh, including christian conservative circles to even discuss an idea of universal health care and that to me blows my mind uh you know jesus didn't ask what somebody's insurance plan was before healing them Jesus didn't say, you know, come unto me unless you have a pre-existing condition. Uh, so, and yet we sort of impose these things on others. Right. 
from our position of privilege. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to think about that all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's a hard conversation, but I think it's one that does, at, at the very least, need to be started. There's a, there is a, there's a, there's a thread in popular culture and there's, there's a, let me say it this way. There's a response to what I just said, Mm -hmm. uh, in which people will, will probably rightly say, well, yeah, but what about personal responsibility? If I give everybody a a safety net, then they're all going to jump, uh, essentially. So where does personal responsibility fall into all this? And, uh, you know, personal responsibility is an important thing. Uh, but I also think that there is a, there is a, um, there's an assumption behind that question of personal responsibility that personal responsibility is causal in all these things that one is poor because they made bad choices, that one is sick because they met, made bad choices. Mm -hmm. So why should I a not poor, not sick person be responsible for this guy who made bad choices. And there's, you can always find an example of somebody who made bad choices. And and in doing so, we ignore the structures that are in place that brought about that poverty, that made the choices harder that made it more difficult for somebody to eat healthy, that made it more difficult for them to provide for their family, that made all these structures that are in place that we don't see unless we look for them. And so it's easy for us to blame the person, and it's a lot harder for us to blame these structures unless we start looking for them. Right. And what's the catch-22 of blaming the structure is that you actually do have a part to play in the structure. You might not be responsible for things, but... There is a responsibility that once you become aware, now there there should be some action. Yeah, I agree. There's the, there's a phrase that people say that uh, that um, silence is consent, and I, I think we're we're often guilty of doing exactly that. Mark, as we bring our time to a close, what's something that you think the church maybe a first step as as we ponder this idea of? Um, domination of broken systems of the healthcare system that we find ourselves in in the United States what what do you think a, a first step would be to somebody who wants to get engaged I think there's a lot of of easy first steps first of all I think an unintended positive consequence of the somewhat divisive political milieu that we're in right now is that other christian voices have become louder that that quote-unquote Christianity, is not associated only with a certain relatively novel strand of Christianity. Uh, I think that's great. I think we need to listen to voices from across the political spectrum within the church, and I think we need to dare to listen to voices outside uh, of our comfort zones, uh, because there's a, there's a lot we can learn from each other. So that's a very broad, you know, not super actionable thing, except that we should listen. I think the first thing that I would say to somebody who's interested is to start to start seeing those structures. Start thinking about the, the assumptions that you make, the assumptions that you make about your own ability to access healthcare, for example. What does that mean? Uh, why are you able to access healthcare? Uh, 
Uh, how often is it not because of anything you've done, but because you happen to have won the birth lottery uh, and happen to not be uh, underneath some of these oppress oppressive structures? But then also, you know, uh, the, the example of Jesus was not just sort of sitting and thinking about these things. He then got out and did. Uh, and, and that's something that we can really do. That, so there's, a, there's a quote from, from Mark Twain. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one's little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. So, and I, travel doesn't have to be to Liberia. Travel can be to outside of your comfort zone. Travel can be to the part of your city that you try to avoid and lock your doors when you drive through. Seeing how the other people that are around you that you don't necessarily see live, I think is super helpful for starting to, opening, starting to open your eyes to, to things that you can do. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mark, and thanks for being on the show. Uh, where can people find you online if they wanted to connect with you, uh, maybe something you're working on? Yeah, so they can find me a couple places. Uh, I have a website, www.markshrime.com, or I'm on Twitter as Mark Shrime. I'm on Instagram as Ninja Surgeon. Together with one of my colleagues, uh, we've started a, a center for evaluation in the space of global surgery. Uh, we didn't talk about this a lot to today, but... There's a, a lot of, uh, in the setting of global health, a lot of well-intentioned people going out into, say, Liberia and just sort of doing stuff without, a, without really knowing if that stuff works. And that's, that's where we really want to go with this, is being able to uh, partner with people and say, look, this thing that you're doing is really working well, this thing not so well, so let's, let's try to fix it. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And uh, we'll make sure we list all of that within the show notes. But again, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. That wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic we discussed today, maybe your experience and ways that we can continue to create community. Visit our website at dismantlepod.com. And until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com. Thank you.